Over the last several months, we've been just reading kind of paragraph by paragraph through our particular Confession of Faith, the 1689 London Confession of Faith, London Baptist Confession of Faith. And uh, we have been looking at particularly chapter 5, which, um, uh, again, taking into account the whole counsel of God's Word summarizes, chapter 5 does, God's providence. And, and this morning, um, the, the paragraph, as I'm reading it, what you want to pay attention to is the assertion that God is sovereign over absolutely everything and at the same time is not responsible for evil. Okay, and so that, that's kind of what we're listening for in paragraph 4 here. Says this, the almighty power, unsearchable wisdom, and infinite goodness of God so far manifest themselves in his providence, okay, that his determinate counsel extendeth itself even to the first fall and all other sinful actions, both of angels and men, and that not by a bare permission, which also he most wisely and powerfully boundeth and otherwise ordereth and governeth in a manifold dispensation to his most holy ends, right? So think, Joseph, what you intended for evil, he says to his brothers, God meant it for what? For good, okay? Yet so, as the sinfulness of their acts proceedeth only from the creatures and not from God, who being most holy and righteous neither is nor can be the author and or approver of sin. So that is paragraph 4 of chapter 5 of our confession. Um, and so, with that said, if you, if you have your Bibles, you're, I'm not going to tell you to turn to a particular uh, book of the Bible quite yet, but just get them ready. We're going to kind of work our way through different passages of Scripture together this morning. We are, uh, we're going to get back into our series on the Gospel of Mark uh, in the beginning part of February. Um, but before we jump back into our series on the Gospel of Mark, the elders thought that it would be best to just do a short series on how it is that we worship uh, at, at Deer Park Fellowship and what it means to be a member of this particular local church. Okay? Every January, we as members, we together reconnect um, consider, prayerfully consider our membership together as we move toward re-signing our membership covenant. So the beginning of the year seemed to us like a good time for us to kind of do this short series. And, and also in God's providence, we've had several families that have been regularly attending Deer Park Fellowship these last few months, and we thought that this series would be helpful for you as well. So for the Month of January and the fir and including the first Sunday uh, in February as well. We're going to examine certain facets, certain elements of what we believe as a local church and how we worship uh, as a local church. Okay, and, and the way that we're going to start this again, this short series is by looking at three words that you're familiar with if you've been coming here for any length of time, and those three words are biblical, reformed, and joyful. Okay, biblical, reformed, and joyful. What do we mean by those words exactly, and how should those adjectives animate us as a local church? Okay, and so in order to, to answer those questions, we're going to look at a few different passages of Scripture this morning that I think will give us a greater clarity uh, regarding the significance of these words and why they are appropriate for us as a church. So let me pray, and then we're going to jump right in. Um, I don't have takeaways printed in your bulletin. I did not have them in time for Pauline to print them for us 
So just shorthand what you can, and I'll make sure I send you the takeaways in an email. But let me pray, and then we're going to jump in. Lord, I thank you for Christ. Thank you for allowing us as a church um, to gather here, God. Thank you that, that, Lord, your word reminds us that we're saints, not because, again, of anything that we've done, Lord, but solely because of Christ, uh, that we are covered and clothed in the righteousness of Christ Jesus. And God, we just, I am very thankful for free grace, because without it, none of us would be saved. And Lord, as we look at your word this morning, help us by your spirit to not just to read it, God, but to understand it, to internalize it, to be warmed by it, to be changed by it, for the glory of your name. And we love you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So this is the, the, the first takeaway that I'm going to give you this morning uh, is, is long. So again, you're going to have to, the, the rest of them aren't quite as long as this, so you're going to have to shorthand it. Uh, and again, I'll, I'll send this to you later, but we're going to look at the word biblical first, okay? The, the word biblical. And, and to be biblical, uh, and, and this is kind of the, the takeaway for it, if you will, to be biblical is to be committed to the whole counsel of God's word, to be biblical is to be committed to the whole counsel of God's Word, knowing that all of Scripture testifies to us about the person and work of Jesus Christ. Okay, so to be biblical is to be committed to the whole counsel of God's Word, knowing that all of Scripture testifies to us about the person and work of of Jesus Christ. And being biblical, right, if we're going to be serious about that, being biblical, it necessitates at least three things for us, or three things for us primarily. First, to be biblical is to be Christocentric, okay? To be, and, and, and you'll see this inherent in kind of this takeaway that I've given you, but to be biblical is to be Christocentric. In other words, it's to be Christ-centered, okay? We, we come to Scripture as Christians we, we are to come to God's Word with the presupposition that the Bible is one cohesive book, right? We come to the Word of God knowing, experientially knowing, right? Because we've tasted and we've seen that the Lord's good, that the Old Testament points us, sinners, toward Christ who's our Savior, right? So we have to come to the Scriptures that way, right? To not do so, to not come with that presupposition is to handle the Word of God wrongly, right? You can, you can have all the interpretive tools in your tool belt, right? You can have all the learning, you can have all the training, and you can still miss the point of the Bible if you miss the Christ-centered nature of the Bible, right? Jesus says in his rebuke of the learned and professional uh, religious leaders of the day in John chapter 5, verse 39, he says this, you search the scriptures for in them you think you have eternal life and these are they which testify of me, which testify of me. Right? After the resurrection of Jesus, he calls his own disciples foolish for missing the, the most important point of all of the Scripture. In Luke chapter 24, verses 25 to 27, Jesus gives this rebuke. Then he, Jesus, said to them, O foolish ones, okay, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. 
Ought not the Christ, the Messiah that is, right? Ought not the Christ to have suffered these things and to enter into his glory in beginning at Moses? This is what Luke, the physician, recounts for us. In beginning at Moses and all the prophets, he, Jesus, expounded to them, his disciples, in all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Right? If, if we don't have the presupposition that the scriptures testify about Jesus Christ, right? We can't interpret it rightly. We can't handle it rightly, right? We may, we may know the history of the Bible. We may be well-versed in the original languages, but if we don't read and interpret as a, uh, a spiritual discipline, right? In this Christ-focused way, we'll miss what the Holy Spirit of God is communicating through His living and His active Word, right? We have to come to the Bible as God's church with eyes of faith. We have to see it with eyes of faith. We have to come prayerfully dependent upon the Holy Spirit of God. We have to come to marvel at Christ, who is the fulfillment of both the law and the prophets, and if we don't want to come with a commitment to see Christ in Scripture, how could we find good news for sinners? How could we find good news? One commentator says it this way. He says, there's an old jingle, which is certainly simple and verges on the simplistic, but our forebears were fundamentally right when they taught it. And I, I thought that this, this was good here. He says, the Old Testament is Jesus predicted. The Gospels are Jesus revealed. Acts is Jesus preached. The epistles, Jesus explained. And the revelation, Jesus expected. Right? He, he's the climax, this, this commentator goes on, he's the climax as well as the substance and the center of the whole. In him all God's promises are yes and amen, 2 Corinthians 1.20. Right? So when we say that we want to be biblical as a church. Right? We mean first and foremost that we want to be Christ-centered. And that's what we should mean first and foremost, that we want to be Christ-centered because it's the Bible that testifies about Christ and it's the Holy Spirit of God who exalts Christ to us from the pages of Scripture. Okay, so, so that's the first thing, right? A very fundamental thing that should come to our minds when we use that word biblical. We should want, we should strive by God's grace, strive by the Spirit of God living in us to, to see Christ as the center person of the Scripture. Biblical, being biblical, it also, second thing, it also necessitates that we preach and teach all of Scripture. Right? We preach and teach all of Scripture. We don't have the authority to neglect or alter or manipulate any aspect of God's Word. We don't have any authority to be able to do that to a single doctrine, not a single verse. Right? You've heard me say this before, but when we, are, when we read and interpret the Bible, we're to do so with the whole counsel of God's Word in mind. And this means that we have to know and be committed to knowing what the whole counsel of God's Word says. Right? Every word of Holy Writ, every passage of Scripture has been breathed out. Right? We confess this. Our standard of faith uh, says this. It's been breathed out. The Word of God testifies about this um, itself. Right? It's been breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God. Right? The, 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 the Holy Scripture, it has one divine author. 
And the word of God is a gift to us. It's a gift to us. God has revealed himself to us in a special way in his book. And that means that all of God's word, all of it, is important and it's profitable. It's important and it's profitable. A commitment to the whole counsel of God's word is a commitment to God. And it furnishes a, a holy, a, a thoroughly equipped man or woman of God. We see the Apostle Paul speak to this. And you, you can turn to this passage of Scripture if you want. Again, we're going to jump around. But 2 Timothy chapter 3, starting with verse 16, going to the beginning part of chapter 4. The Apostle Paul, he says this, All Scripture, and it's some of Scripture, but, but all the Scripture is given by inspiration of God, right, through the, whole, the Holy Spirit, okay, and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped or furnished, some translations say, for every good work. It goes into chapter 4 here. I charge you, therefore, right, in light of, of that, Paul says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing in his kingdom. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. And second Timothy chapter 3 verses, verse 16 to the first two verses of chapter 4. Right, Paul he, he charges Timothy that he preach the Word. And by Word, he means all Scripture, right? He qualifies the Word in verse 16 in this passage here. But he says, preach all of God's Word because the Scripture is profitable and it's breathed out by the Holy Spirit of God, right? And the Holy Spirit of God, through Paul here in this little section, knows the challenge that this is and that this would be, not just to Timothy, who's a pastor, but to every pastor that would follow Timothy, because pastors are sinners. Right? Pastors wrestle with a desire to be liked. Pastors wrestle, elders wrestle with compromise. Pastors wrestle with neglecting aspects of God's Word that they fear people will grumble at. Pastors wrestle with their own inadequacies at handling and interpreting the Scripture. Right? So, so Paul here, again, under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that the Word of God must be preached, and it must be preached in season, and it must be preached out of season. In other words, the whole counsel of God's Word should be preached in the favorable times, right, when it's well-received by the people that it's being proclaimed to, and it's to be preached in the unfavorable times, when it's rejected and when it will cost you something or perhaps cost you everything, including your life. Right? We haven't experienced here in the States that sort of persecution, right? the sort of persecution that the early church here experienced or the sort of persecution that our brothers and sisters have experienced around the world. But we do see increasingly that a commitment to the whole counsel of God's Word will now cost you something in our society as well. Right? And, and I'm not talking about sinful, rude ways in which the Bible is kind of manipulative, manipula, manipula, I can't even say the word, is being used in a manipulative way, like a, 
like a weapon, right? But I have in mind here that being this sincere or warm or vibrant sort of Christian, even that will, will cost you something now, right? Being committed to the whole counsel of God's Word, it may cost you your reputation. It may get you classified as, as being anti-intellectual, right? It may cost you relationships. It may cost you various career advancements, career opportunities, Right? What are some of those commitments, just to make it specific, right, so it's not pie in the sky, what are some of those commitments that are increasingly costly in our society? A commitment to the exclusivity of Jesus Christ makes you narrow-minded about other religions. Right? The message of the cross, the Apostle Paul says elsewhere, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. I remember recently sitting with an agnostic who wanted to hear my thoughts on, on other religions and was, was taken aback that I, that I really believe that Christ is the exclusive way to have peace with God and that all the other religions are damning. How could I be, how could I be so closed off? How, how could I be so, so narrow-minded in my thinking? In, in orthodox understanding of Genesis and creation and a literal Adam right, makes you anti-science. Right? In other words, to, to read Genesis as history documented by God Himself instead of allegory, it makes you simple-minded. Here's one, a commitment to a biblical sex ethic. Right? Marriage as instituted by God and reserved for one male and female in a covenant relationship. That could cost you something. To say that there's only two God-assigned genders can cost you something. Now, these commitments can make you, can invite the accusation that you're being controlling or unloving according to, to worldly standards. Right? What of abortion? Right? To labor to end the, the biggest injustice in our society and facing it with clarity and conviction, calling it murder, right? It makes you unloving toward women because it's equated as health care, right? I give you these just as a few examples to kind of demonstrate that we live out of season, right? This is a time called out of season that we're living in, right? And, and we will probably die in it, in this out of season time, right? The, the temperature presently is only rising, right? It's going to increasingly cost you something to be committed to the whole counsel of God's Word. But there it is in the text that I read to you just a moment ago, the Apostle Paul's commendation to Pastor Timothy, telling him to preach all of God's Word, to be committed to it, nonetheless, no matter what, right? And because the Bible is living and active and because the Holy Spirit has inspired it and preserved it for us, the same is true for you and me sitting here so many years later, right? There's, as, as Solomon said, there's, there's really nothing new. There's truly nothing new under the sun, right? We shouldn't be shocked by this. We shouldn't be surprised by this. We shouldn't even be offended by this. It's nothing new, right? Being biblical, it doesn't ebb and flow in favorable and unfavorable seasons, because being biblical, being committed to the whole counsel of God's Word is to be unchanging, because the God who authored 
the Word is Himself unchanging. So being biblical is to be committed to the whole counsel of God's Word, both in favorable seasons. Praise God for favorable seasons. I long for favorable seasons, and I'm sure you long for favorable seasons too, and we should pray toward that end, right, that we will enter those favorable seasons where God's Word is received with joy and gladness. But we're to be just as steady in the unfavorable seasons as well, the unfavorable season in which we live in now. And then the third thing that being biblical necessitates is submission, right? which is certainly implicit in, in being committed to the whole counsel of God's Word. But being biblical necessitates submission to the Scriptures in practice. It necessitates submission to the Scriptures in practice. Look back at those words in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16. Right? The Word of God is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, which is, is rebuke or convict. It's profitable for correction, which is a, a setting on the right path, which is discipline, and it's, it's different than punishment. We'll talk more about that in a couple of weeks. It's profitable for instruction. And that the word there, it means training or educating or discipling in righteousness. Some of your translations say training in righteousness. Right? God's word, in other words, it should be applied. God's Word should be applied. It must be applied to every aspect of our lives. There's no area, absolutely no area, our secret meditations, our education, our relationship with our spouse, our parenting, our vocations, our hobbies, what we watch for pleasure or entertainment, how and who we vote for, how we suffer, how we come to the end of our lives. There's no area in which Christ in his word is irrelevant, right? No area, right? We are to live and make decisions that reflect a submissiveness to the scriptures, a humility, if you will, toward God, and toward his word. We should live in a way that demonstrates that we fear God and not man. And as we commit ourselves to being a, a biblical people, we will be people that treasure, that value, that delight in the law of the Lord and the word of God. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful, but his delight, which hopefully by God's grace will be our delight, is in the law of the Lord. And in his law, he meditates. He's obsessed with it, right? He meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither, right? especially in those out-of-season times. His leaf shall not wither, and whatever he does shall prosper. Psalm 1, verses 1 to 3. So we want to be a people that are biblical. Secondly, and these last two will go quicker, but biblical for us is foundational, right? Secondly, to be reformed is to be committed to apostolic doctrine. To be reformed is to be committed to apostolic doctrine. And if I could bottom line what being reformed is, it would be this. To be reformed is to be God-centered. To be reformed, if, if I shorthanded it for you, to be reformed is to be God-centered, not man-centered. Right? To be God-centered, not 
man-centered, right? We want to be a God-centered church, right? When we come together each Lord's Day, we should ask ourselves, is the Lord pleased with this? Is the Lord pleased with this? And, and that most important question, because it is a most important question, right? That most important question should trickle down into the rest of our lives, the other six days of the week. Now, that word reformed, it brings to our minds what? Right? The, the Reformation, right? We kind of think about the Reformation when we hear that word, that movement that became prevalent in the 1500s. Right? But what we should see is the men of the Reformation, men like Luther and men like Calvin and Zwingli and, and Knox and Bucer and Tyndale, and men like them, they weren't inventing doctrines and systems of thought. That's not what was happening in the 1500s. They weren't even seeking to start what we now consider our Protestant tradition. Right? They were calling the, the Catholic Church back to biblical fidelity. Right? They, they were seeking to do what is inherent in the word reform. They were seeking to reform the Catholic Church. Right? And in that way, Protestants are more Catholic than Catholics are, right? If you want to, you can put it that way. But these men in the Reformation, they were calling for the very thing that we have written out on the wall here in the coffee area as a reminder, what became known as the five solas of the Reformation, right? Which, in short, is grace alone, through faith alone, right? In Christ alone, as revealed in Scripture alone, to the glory of God alone. Right? Those solas, they, they weren't invented in the 1500s, but they were recovered and they were reasserted okay, through various creeds and confessions and in the way that the churches began to worship at, at a great cost to them during the Reformation and what would be considered a very unfavorable season, right? Our tradition exists because of faithful Christians in unfavorable times. So how, how could we selfishly drop the torch now in some act of self-preservation? But these solas, as I said, they're not invented, but they were recovered and they were reasserted. And we see them clearly throughout Scripture. But a very concise place that you can see these solas, if you want to flip over there, is Ephesians chapter 2 verses 8 to 10, right? You're familiar with this passage, but I'll, I'll read it to you nonetheless. For by grace, right, you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. For we, right, you and me, are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Right, Paul under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, says that we are saved by grace through faith. Two of the solas, even just right there out of the get-go, right? Now, our salvation is not through works done in righteousness. Right? We need to be reminded of this all the time because we can so easily slip into thinking that it's our good works that saved us or perhaps it's our good works that preserve us. But our salvation is not through works done in righteousness, our works at least, it's not through our works done in righteousness, right? It's not because we chose God, it's, a, it's solely a work of unmerited favor, right? Our being made right with God is a gift from God alone, 
Right? The Holy Spirit goes at great lengths to tell us this just in this passage of Scripture alone. He says, quote, not of yourselves. He says, it's a gift of God. He says, not of works. He says, lest anybody should boast. Right? Our salvation and the good works that we're saved to do are prepared beforehand by who, according to that passage? By God. By God. Right? So in this passage, we see grace alone. In this passage, we see faith alone. We see Christ alone. Us being God's workmanship is made possible through Christ alone. And who gets the glory for all of this? Not us. Right? Not us. God. God alone receives the glory. Right? So we should see in Scripture and summarized by these solas and the great reformed creeds and confessions that our church subscribes to, the God-centeredness of God and how it's good for us that God isn't centered around us. That would be really bad, right? That would be really, really bad. He isn't manipulated by you and me. He can't be manipulated by you and me. He doesn't frantically respond to you and me. We don't catch him off guard. He is the immutable, eternal God who saved us according to his own character for his own glory. And that, for us, should produce a peace. It should produce in us this inner calm. We have in the Lord, we have in our triune God, a stable, imperishable inheritance because God is God-centered. Because he's God-centered, right? God's God-centeredness is the most loving and best thing for us. And we have to respond to God's God-centeredness by being God-centered as well. That's how we are to live our lives. Not being centered around us, not being centered around each other, but being God-centered. That's a summary when we use the word reformed. That's just what we're trying to get at here. And then lastly, we look at the word joyful. The word joyful. To be joyful is to delight yourself in the Lord. Right? To be joyful is to delight yourself in the Lord. Right? We must, as Christians, we must be joyful. Right? Christians of all people should be joyful. And, and, and by joyful, I mean this, this deep abiding joy that's not easily manipulated or messed with, right? Christians should be joyful. How, how could we have the gospel of God and not be joyful, right? How can we have the indwelling Holy Spirit and be bitter about our lot in life, right? How can we be, be delivered from the depths of hell and not sing praises to our triune God. A, a stoic or grumpy Christian really is a, a contradiction. It's a contradiction. And what, what we should do is recapture for us a, a biblical theology of emotion, if you will. Right? The Lord God, He gave us emotions, and though our emotions have been impacted by the fall and make for terrible masters, right? By God's grace, he's sanctifying our emotions, right? So, so we don't repent of being enslaved 
by our emotions, by becoming emotionless. Right? That's not what repentance looks like. We repent by informing our emotions with God's Word and directing our emotions towards the Lord in humble adoration of Him. Right? There should be a warmth to a Christian. There should be a warmth to a Christian. There should be an approachableness that we have because of our joy, our delight in the Lord. There should be this inviting posture, one that gets its cues from the God who has been hospitable to us in Christ Jesus. And as we spend time in the Word, it should, by the Spirit of God living in us, it should have a warming effect on us. And if it's not, it's because we're not approaching it in the right way. Right? The Word of God should have a warming respect. Yes, we're to love the Lord God with our mind, right? but that doesn't mean that loving the Lord is some academic pursuit or some intellectual exercise solely. Right? It's a delighting work, or it should be in us a delighting work. Our head and our hearts should both be affected Psalm 37, 4. Delight yourself also in the Lord, and He shall give you the desires of your heart. What does a heart want more of that delights itself in the Lord? More of the Lord, right? And God promises to give Himself to you. This is a promise. Why would we not avail ourselves of this? Why would we not work toward this end by His grace? Delight yourself in the Lord. He'll give you the desires of your heart. He'll give you more of Himself. We looked at this a few weeks ago, Philippians 4, 4. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say, Paul says, rejoice. Rejoice. And Jesus summarizing God's law. Right? He gives us the goal of God's law, of, of God's Word, that by the way, we only get through the gospel, right? So we don't need to mistake, we don't need to muddy up law and gospel. The law is not gospel, the gospel is not law, right? So we don't want to get those confused, right? But what Jesus upheld, right, and if we share union with Christ, we should seek by His grace to to labor in. This is the summary of, of even the law here. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. First and greatest commandment. The second's like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Of these two commandments hang all the law and the prophets. Matthew 22, verses 37 to 40. That Christ upheld. That in Christ we can enjoy. Right? Not perfect this side of eternity, but we can truly enjoy. Delight in the Lord. Rejoice in the Lord. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which in turn spills over to your neighbor. So Christian, this morning, can your walking with God be described as joyful? Can it be described as joyful? If that's a different, difficult question to answer, perhaps ask somebody who's around you often. Right? Right? Our joy in the Lord, as I said, should be an abiding one. And, and, and an obvious one. And it's not one that's trivial or lightweight or gullible, even pretending and ignoring the, the hardness of life's trials. Right? This life is hard. Right? But, but lament, which is 
worship, right? Most of the psalms are psalms of lament, right? Lament and joy, they aren't enemies. They aren't, they aren't enemies, they're friends. You can be joyful even in life's difficulties, right? The Holy Spirit of God in every season commands us to rejoice. And as the Word of God warms our affections for God, we will increasingly be able to face even the most difficult of circumstances and in humble praise and adoration of our God who's most high. So this is the, the defining of our terms this morning. We want to be biblical, we want to be reformed as God's church, and we want to be joyful. Why don't we go to the Lord in prayer? God, thank you for this time that we've had together in these various passages of Scripture. And Lord, we just again confess our neediness for you. As we'll see in just a moment, Lord, we declare our dependence upon you as God's church. And we're thankful, Lord, that you have saved us and that you hold us securely. And we love you and give you all praise, all honor and glory in Jesus' name. Amen.